Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Sports Masala Podcast. I'm back here with my brother, Gotham, and this week we have a great deep dive for you, the English Premier League. My brother is a huge soccer fan. He's been playing since he was a little kid and has been able to pick top talent from smaller teams and leagues before they were even scouted by the bigger clubs. Shout out to Leroy Sané on that one. Super excited today for that discussion. But before we get to that, let's highlight the craziest things that happened in sports this week. Gotham, take it away. Thank you very much, Anna. And let's go ahead and get started with the craziest things in sports this week. And we're going to start at the top of my list, because I love saying this, is Ashton Villa's absolute hammering over Liverpool 7-2. Like, I didn't think my day would be able to get any better. But then I watched that and it just made my day. It's almost like a baseball score. It's not something you see in soccer, but man, is it impressive. And these were the champions of the Premier League last season. And they just got hammered. Ashton Villa, Ollie Watkins with the hat trick, Jack Grealish with a couple of goals. It was amazing to watch as they dismantled a full Liverpool side. And let's be real, Liverpool have not looked the best in their title defense campaign. That's pretty obvious to see. They didn't look that great even in Project Restart. So. There are questions there inherently, but full credit to Ashton Villa for putting in just an absolutely amazing performance. They got lucky with a couple of deflected goals, but they definitely deserved that win. So great job, Ashton Villa. Thank you for making my day. Do you care to elaborate how you left Ollie Watkins and Jack Grealish on your bench for the Fantasy League this week? I started Jack Grealish, but I benched Ollie Watkins, and if I had started him, I would have won this week. So very, very disappointing, but you know, it's like that bittersweet moment. You know, it's sweet that they killed Liverpool. A little bitter that I left them on the bench and they couldn't win me my Premier League game this week. But it's okay. It's okay. You know what? Real results count more than fantasy. So I guess the bigger disappointment is the Tottenham thrashing of Manchester United this week, which was brutal. I, as a Martial fantasy owner, was very excited when he drew a penalty within the first minute of the game. And then I don't know what happened to Manchester United. They kind of just fell apart and Tottenham seemed to score on every possible attack. I mean, Hunming Son scored, I think, two chipped goals in this game, which I was like, well, what is he doing? He's never scored against United before and then decides to go absolutely berserk this week. And then Aurier gets in on the party. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? But Jose and Ole's faces before and after the penalty and uh, at halftime seemed considerably different. I will say, we'll talk about this later in the episode today, but Ed Woodward looked like a man whose job is on the line because that was a pretty shambolic display from a Manchester United defense that was supposed to be a lot better. Oh, his job is definitely on the line. I'm surprised he still has a job simply because he has not been able to bring in the people and the players that they need. That defense is shambolic. Maguire is error-prone, and Bailly made a mistake that led to the goal. But you expect that from Bailly. You know mentally he's not there. Physically, absolutely diving into tackles, blocking shots. But mentally, you need someone at the back to really control things. And United just don't have an answer at this point. And I think the telltale sign is when there are tons of rumors at halftime that Alex Teas from the Portuguese league is joining Manchester United. It's almost like Ed Woodward was like, wow, Luke Shaw, thank you very much for your services from Southampton. We paid a ton of money for you. We will now go and source our left back from somewhere else. It's just disappointing. 
to see us overspending on so many different players. We're looking for a right midfielder and a left back when realistically we need a center back, preferably two center backs, a defensive midfielder, and a striker. So I was actually quite pleased to hear that Cavani might join, but maybe after today's performance, he may reconsider that. But bro, that sounds like Man United need a whole new team other than Bruno and Pogba. Yeah, that's about it. I can't think of anyone else on the team who is safe. And okay, I guess maybe Rashford and Greenwood. I think at this point, Juan Bishaka's place is safe. I think De Gea's place is in contention for strings of errors, reluctance to come out. Honestly, Luke Shaw played decently well last season. And it's surprising to see that his place would be in contention only because of his injury record, I would think is the reason. Yes, Rashford still got a spot. I think Greenwood's a great talent, should keep his spot and grow into the team. But you're right, Martial definitely at risk. McTominay at risk. Even Pogba at risk, no matter how many times you want to play him because he was that came with such a big price tag. Sometimes you have to start delivering. And maybe he needs to be played in a different position. Maybe we need different tactics to utilize him because whatever we're doing right now is not working. As a mercurial player without a system that fits you, we're seeing the results. Okay, but we're going to move away from the sadness of Manchester United losing to something we don't often see in the cricket world. And that we're going to the IPL now, and we're going to talk about the game between the Chennai Super Kings versus the Kings 11 of Punjab. Kings 11 Punjab today came out and put a pretty decent total of 178 for four during their 20 overs, which is quite decent. Not an amazing total, but not bad by any stretch of the word. But it was really the run chase by the Chennai Super Kings, which is something to be lauded because they went and put up 181 runs in 17.4 overs and didn't lose a single wicket. It's like the quote unquote perfect chase. Both openers played the same number of balls too. They both played 53 balls. Shane Watson hit 83 runs. Fop Duplessis hit 87. And they just killed Kings 11 putt job. So it was just a very perfect chase for Chennai Super Kings today. And full credit to them for really putting in a great performance. That's awesome. And I guess we'll move from cricket to the MLB now, where for the first time since 1932, there were two guys on the same team who homered twice in the same game in MLB postseason history. So Fernando Tatis and Will Myers of the San Diego Padres the first guys to do it since Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back in 1932 with the New York Yankees. That in and of itself is a massive achievement and just super, super excited that we can drop some MLB highlights in our craziest things that happened this week. That's definitely a throwback and two legendary players with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And let's see how these players make their mark in history like the ones before them. Now going from Major League Baseball, let's go to the NFL and let's talk about the craziest team in the NFL right now. And that is the Dallas Cowboys. Cause it seems like week in and week out, they managed to go down by a ton of points and somehow, miraculously, the third and fourth quarter comes around and Dak Prescott goes to be Superman. And somehow they manage to come back and it looks like they have a chance to win the game. In reality, they really needed the Atlanta Falcons a couple of weeks ago to make a mental mistake for them to come back and win the game. The other games have struggled right at the end. But again, the Cowboys today went down to a massive hole to the Cleveland Browns. And then it looked like they were down and out. And somehow they managed to bring it close before losing it again this week. It's just a roller coaster ride with the Cowboys this year. And if you're a Cowboys fan, I'm not sure how to feel for you. But if you are a fantasy owner of Cowboys players, you must be loving this. Because That's me. Dak is... <laughs> exactly. Because Dak is putting up... 
gaudy numbers. Amari Cooper, gaudy numbers. I left him on the bench this week. Another fantasy mistake by me this week. As you guys can tell, not a great week for me in fantasy and my little small tweaks to my lineup. But in any case, great for fantasy nut players. Not so great for the Dallas Cowboys organization. So it's weird that I say this, but hopefully they become less entertaining as the season goes on. Because if they keep doing this, man, we are in for some type of season. Well, the funny thing is that that division is so bad right now that atop the NFC East is the Washington football team, which no one expected to see at the start of the season. I mean, Dwayne Haskins on a fourth and goal today threw a check down when he had 12 yards to go. I mean, it's fourth and goal, buddy. Throw it in the end zone. Even if you get intercepted, it's okay. But he threw a check down and the guy ran out of bounds. If that is the best team in the NFC East, I think they might set a record for how few games they win to make it to the playoffs as the division winner. I mean, that is really, really sad. This might be like the Seahawks from what must be more than 10 years ago went seven and nine and made the playoffs somehow. Maybe a team with a losing record does it this year. It certainly looks possible in the NFC East. So let's move over from the NFL to Roland Garros, where... We have seen some immense wins by unranked and really low-ranked players. So we had Hugo Gaston, who's from France, and Yannick Sinner from Italy, who really beat some unbelievable opponents. Gaston beat Stan Wawrinka, who is a multi-Grand Slam winner in five sets. And Yannick Sinner beat... Alexander Zverev, who just made the U.S. Open finals in four sets. Granted, it seems like Zverev was sick prior to the match and not sure how they let him play given COVID, but he seems to blame his illness on the fact that Yannick Sinner took him out. Yannick Sinner, I hadn't heard of until the most recent warm-up tournaments. Sinner looks like he's in the mold of a Fabio Fonini, some guy who hits big, and has just a great all-around game. His next opponent is Rafa Nadal, who has won Roland Garros 12 times, which is more Grand Slam wins than any other person at any tournament in tennis. Rafa has been on an absolute roll this tournament so far and hasn't even dropped a set. He's looking absolutely dynamite this year at Roland Garros, and I hope that he continues his streak and gets... Number 13. Gaston, on the other hand, just lost against Dominic Team in five sets. Everyone's blaming the colder weather because the French Open is usually never played this late and the new Wilson balls. We'll have to wait and see what happens with Wilson balls if they continue to use them in tournaments going forward after this one. But uh, really exciting to see some young new talent coming up and really pushing the top four players for a spot in the next gen of tennis. Oh, if he won, we could have all said, there's no one greater than Gaston. But tough luck to him in five sets, but well played. And I want to stay at Roland Garros for, and talk about the women's side of the draw, where we saw Iga Suyatek beat Simona Halep, one of the favorites to win on the women's side, 6-1, 6-2 in under 50 minutes. It's funny because it happened in the fourth round this year. And the same time last year, Suyatek lost to Halep 6-0, 6-1, also in the fourth round in 45 minutes. That's some crazy irony. Yes, definitely crazy irony. And it's amazing to see some of the younger players really stepping up. 
And also, big shout out to qualifier Martina Trevisian for defeating the number five seed Bertens today, 6-4, 6-4 as well. So definitely seeing some outside talent really trying to push forward in a big tournament like Roland Garros. Absolutely. And it'll be great to chat more about tennis in our deep dive later on in the season. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Anna. And why don't we go ahead and switch over to our feature topic for this week? We are going to do our league deep dive this week with my brother being the soccer guru and expert on everything soccer, including the EPL, the Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga, and Ligue 1. And I am super, super excited to talk to him because he is impeccably passionate about this topic and the players. So without further ado, let's just jump right in, bro. What are you most excited about for this new soccer season? It feels like things are back to normal, except for the fans not being in the stadium. But given all of the broadcasting networks, they're pumping in the crowd noise. It feels like a normal game otherwise. Uh, It doesn't really feel like a normal game otherwise, because let's be real, the crowd noise they pump in is kind of questionable. And it doesn't really give you a good sense of what's going on on the pitch. Though, when they first started during the COVID era, they were able to turn off the noise and actually hear what's going on in the stadium. And that was actually a really cool experience because you could hear the players on the pitch talking and the managers and the coaches giving out instructions. And that was really interesting to listen to because you're like, ah, that's where they're making the changes. That's what they're trying to do. As opposed to just the stereotypical noise that goes on in the background. But we are extremely excited for this soccer season. It's the first one. They have pretty much almost no team that really has a break, a real rest before the league started. There were some teams with Project Restart who didn't really have anything much to play for. So I think those teams are definitely going to benefit from having that sort of rest and recuperation time. Whereas I think the teams which have been playing throughout are really going to struggle beginning of the season. And as the season goes on with injuries, because without the break that players get in the summer, their fitness levels aren't going to be there. And having to play numerous games could prove to be a real challenge for teams, especially teams that are lacking in squad depth. So that's something we should definitely look out for as the season progresses. And teams which already have mounting injury lists, like Sergio Aguero out for Man City, got hurt at the end of last season, but that's continued very much into this season. It's going to be a big factor for their team going forward. So Injuries, I think, are going to be the big thing this season to watch out for. How important is that summer break? I know you were just talking about the importance of it as it relates to injuries, but what other things have we missed out on by not having that summer break? Typically, players would go on international breaks or play for their home country. Um, We would have a preseason. You'd have a lot of young players getting to see the pitch that may not otherwise get time on the first team. So can you kind of talk about what things look different and how that might impact, you know, shorter squad lists going forward? Well, actually, I think it's making a big difference on gameplay is what we're really seeing is that the preseason is a great opportunity for managers to start implementing new tactics to help improve on last season. So even if it's a distinguished squad that's been there in the last year and working work together with no new additions, they still have to develop. And what we're seeing in the first couple of weeks, first couple of game weeks, really, of this new Premier League season is that the offenses are clicking, but is it really the offensive clicking or the defense is not being robust? And I think it's actually the latter. That in the preseason, as you were mentioning, young kids get an opportunity to play with the first team and you have people who are earmarked then for success or breaking into the first team. 
But you also have an opportunity to set those defensive boundaries and to set your defensive shape, that structure that's so important to teams. You're not seeing that as much. And that's why we see in the first couple of game weeks, these scores just being run out five goal games for multiple teams, four goals, even for leads twice in two weeks. It's crazy. Usually at the beginning of the season, we see teams fail to score goals. Their offense isn't clicking yet. But in this case, we've seen all the offenses click. But that's really the fact that the defenses haven't been there. But I think that's one of the things that really gets impacted with the fact that they didn't get the break. And also, you see fitness levels. Players are tired, especially if you look at Manchester United. When they went out there, they looked so tired. You could see down the stretch, Bruno Fernandes was just getting tired. He had to play every game. And with such a short break coming back, he wasn't able to recover from the fatigue. And that's not his fault. It's just the fact that having to play so many games in August and then having to start right back in September doesn't really bode well for players. It's really difficult. And especially the English Premier League, which doesn't get the winter break as many other leagues do, where they have to play all those festive fixtures come December and January timeframe, really is going to put a stress on squads. And I think this lack of break now is going to prove to be challenging for teams as we go throughout the season. So you mentioned that offenses are doing well, but defenses not so well. Why is it that soccer teams are able to have such potent offenses? I get that the other team needs to play defense, but... It seems like there are a lot of clinical finishers all of a sudden playing in the front and midfielders who are scoring a lot of goals. Can we chalk that up to just poor defensive play or is it just easier to gel with your teammates in an attacking system or in attacking play compared to being more structured in defense? I think when teams aren't in a structure sometimes, and especially high caliber players, giving them the freedom to move around and just play offensive football is really helpful to them. And that's why we're seeing them be creative and score multiple goals and creating lots of chances, right? We're seeing clinical finishers all of a sudden. It's not really clinical finishers. It's just they're creating opportunities and they're able to score. In the past, they were creating those opportunities too, but defenses were cutting down on those balls. There were less loose balls for them to catch and score goals from. So that's, that's the real difference here is what we're seeing is there is creativity when you're not structuring defense. But at the end of the day, as Michael Owen says, you have to score more goals than the opponent to win. So if you're going to play that type of football, you need to be scoring more goals than your opponent. Leeds found that out the hard way. First week, they scored three goals in their Premier League debut, and then they let in four. And Fulham found out the hard way again this week. They scored three goals, but they let in four. So it doesn't matter how much you score. If you let more in, then you can score. Yeah, that's so true. I I feel for the two newly promoted sides here, Fulham and Leeds. They're trying really hard, but at the same time, the competition within the league is just getting to them, I think. So can you tee us up with some surprise or sleeper teams who could do really well this year? I remember that last year, Sheffield United came out of absolutely nowhere um, and totally surprised everyone in the Premier League with their defensive prowess and their defenders scoring goals. I know they had a lot of close score lines, but it was really impressive to see a team coming from the championship who could hold their own with a Premier League team. Absolutely. And their defense played very well, especially before Project Restart. They had one of the better defensive records in the league. So full credit to them. So this year, from what it looks like, I would say Everton, they'd had a really poor finish last year. And I think they've been able to bring in some talent and then bring in a manager who is now going to be able to really capture talents of their team. I think last year they underachieved and Ancelotti knew that. But 
Angelotti's gone ahead and brought an entirely new midfield to Everton. And I think that midfield is really going to run the team for them. They have the options up top. Calvert-Lewin's a young striker. Richarlison, even though he'll spurn some chances, is quite talented and really offers you a threat up front. But that midfield with Hamas is a creative midfielder. Kure is a real box-to-box midfielder and Alan, solid defensive midfielder. Together, that midfield, supporting the attack and supporting the defensive line, I'd say Everton are the team to watch this year. Wow, that's pretty bold. I know that they recently had a nice influx of cash from an Iranian investor. And it seems surprising that this year they finally bought the right midfield trio. So there have been a ton of players who have moved to the Premier League this season. Who do you think is going to be the most impactful transfer who has moved to the Premier League this year? There have been a lot of big money signings this summer, but I'm actually going to have to go with the signing of a defender. That's Gabriel to Arsenal. Because Arsenal's Whoa, that defense... Is bold. It, <laughs> It is bold, but that's because Arsenal's defense has been, for lack of better terms, abysmal in recent years. Or could we use the term porous? Oh, leaky, whatever term you want to describe. They needed an inclusion on defense, and they needed a center back who wasn't David Louise to really start commanding that area. And I'm not saying he's the best, most talented player that's been bought this summer into the Premier League or that he is going to be the most successful player out of all the new transfers. You know, you think of Kai Havertz, Timo Werner for Chelsea, even Thiago Silva really holding down that Chelsea back line. But the fact of the matter is Arsenal really needed some defensive cover, and he actually fits that need and is, seems to be talented enough and have the skill set to actually lead their team to glory or at least a better finish than they had last year. Fair enough. So let's move over from Arsenal to your favorite team, Manchester United. So for those of you who don't know, Gotham is a massive Man U fan and literally has all the gear, the soccer ball, knows their players better than I think anyone that I know knows them. And so Gotham, why don't you talk about what their potential is this year? What are they missing So the past game that they just had seemed to expose a lot of holes on their team. So can you talk about what the ceiling is for Bruno, how they fill those holes, and what we should expect from Man United this season? Absolutely. So as we were mentioning about Bruno earlier, he just seems tired and he needs a little bit of a break, which I'm happy Donny Van de Beek is in. He can offer him some rotation. It's not Bruno having to play every 90 to 120 minutes every game for the whole season. He definitely needed some cover. We needed to create a midfielder. And that was a reasonable purchase for an end where we didn't have to pay $100 million for another player. But on the same tone, is the team still needs to improve in the two areas which I said last year we need to improve. And that is, we need a true striker and we need a center back. Victor Lindelof, since coming to United, has just not cut the mustard. I hate to be that guy to knock our player, but he just hasn't done it. He's been responsible for so many mistakes. He often loses his defender. And on his day, he can be good, but he doesn't pair well with Maguire. And I'm not totally convinced that he's the guy. Instead, I think we need to bring in another central defender who can really shore up the defense. Because as long as it's Lindelof and Maguire, De Gea is going to look just as bad as he's looked, no matter what form he's in. Because the goalkeeper's form is almost always directly linked to the center back's form. If the center backs aren't playing well, there are more shots on target. 
doesn't matter how good your goalkeeper is. He's going to look worse and he's going to start making mistakes. He's going to lose confidence. And that's going to be an issue. So they absolutely need to bring in a new center back. So if you need a center back and had Woodward's direct line, who would you recommend Manchester United go out and buy before the end of the transfer window? Who do you think could shore up that defense alongside McGuire? I think you'd have to go with a center back with some versatility. So like a Marquinhos or a Tilo Carrer from PSG. Both of them offer that flexibility in the range of positions. Marquinhos, defensive midfield and center back. Carrer, right back, center back. They give you an option. They also give you that physicality that you really need in the premiership to really succeed. So I would suggest both of those as key players to look at and who have the capability to succeed. So... Now that we know what they're missing, let's chat about what their potential is for this year. Where do you see them landing and what can other Man U fans expect from their team? It pains me to say this, but I think a top six finish is where we see United this year. And it's not that they're taking a step back with their players this year. It's more of all the other teams are moving forward. And that's the one thing which you have to look at. People often say, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. In this case, while they don't need to spend, spend, like I'm not saying go spend 100 million on Jaden Sancho as a solution to your problems. They need to start bringing in players who can compete for first team spots and raise the level of the team as a whole. Andy Martial, as I mentioned before, is not the proven goal scorer that we need. He's mercurial, very talented, but mercurial. Same with Pogba, very talented, but mercurial. And we need consistent players who are going to put in solid performances week in, week out. So for that reason, I think a top six finish is probably where they're going to end up. They're too talented to fall outside that. They do. I think Ole is going to be on a really, really hot seat. But I think the race for the top four is too tight. and I don't see United making it in the season. Well, there you have it, folks. Straight from the Man United fan himself, a top six finish. That is painful. So let's move from United, who seem to be in line for maybe a top six finish, to the relegation battle. Which teams do you think are just not going to cut it in the Premier League this year? And which teams are mounting this massive title challenge? Is it Liverpool going to retain their trophy? Is it Manchester City coming back to reclaim it after a year off. Who, who do you think, bro? Let's start with the relegation battle. I think that's slightly actually easier question to answer this year. Promoted teams have often faced challenges staying up. And I think this year's promoted teams are really going to face that challenge. I'm really sad to say this, but I have a feeling that Fulham and West Brom are going to come up and they're going to go right back down at the end of the season. Not that I don't like these teams, but I just don't think they have the talent nor the defensive mindset enough to keep enough clean sheets to get it, get them over the line. Sometimes you just need points at the end of the season. And I don't think these teams are going to have it. The third spot for relegation is always a tough one. You never know what's going to happen. We'll have to see how Ashton Villa's new signings come and work together. Newcastle always questionable. I think they're way too talented now, especially with bringing in Jamal Lewis and Callum Wilson. I think they're way too talented to go down. Yeah, the third team is going to definitely be a challenge. We'll have to see how things pan out. On the other side of the table, let's look at the title challenge. And I don't think Liverpool are in the form as they were last year. Last year, they were so potent in front of goal. They dominated other teams. They were defensively sound. And what we see in the last couple of weeks, maybe it's tiredness, maybe it's fatigue, who knows. But 
they haven't been that sound defensively. You've seen Van Dyke start to make some mistakes. Joe Gomez hasn't been that perfect foil for him. So I have some doubts starting to creep in on whether or not Liverpool can continue their run of form and retain their title. I don't think they're going to win it again this year. I think retaining it is too hard. One of my friends is a Liverpool fan. Gasp, I know. Somehow a Manchester United fan, Liverpool fan can be friends, but... It happens, believe me, it's all fine. But looking at other teams, I don't think City can cut it either, though. They don't have a proven striker in the system that works for them. Aguero's out for the next couple of months. I like Jesus. I think he's a great striker. And I think on other teams, like maybe even Leicester, he could really succeed. But Pep doesn't seem to be playing him in a position in a style of football, which really suits him. So without that proven goal-scoring striker, I think City are going to find it hard. And the defensive woes can still continue, right? They brought in Ake, could help them significantly, but who says he doesn't go down with the injury? Man City's defenders have gone down with injuries. Yeah, way to, way to rub salt in that wound, buddy. Uh, <laughs> it's, the, we, our entire defense pretty much spends at least one to three months on the surgery table with Dr. Ramon Cagut in Barcelona. And it is just painful to watch each of them. And then Mendy goes off running with a boot and wonders why he's having trouble coming back. But that is a topic for another day. Yeah, so they're also... I don't think either of these two teams are going to be as dominant as they were last season. I think they will win games, right? And I'm sure they're going to be in the title race. But I have a feeling it's not going to be as strong of a title race as it was last year. I think that opens up the door for some other teams to make a challenge. Teams that maybe haven't been as consistent, but who, if they can string together a lot of consistent performances, could also vie for the title. This could be a year where we see a Leicester-type team win the Premiership. Wow. In terms of that, finding who that team is going to be is definitely a real challenge. I don't think Leicester are going to do it this year. Unfortunately, Brendan Rodgers seems to be an expert in just slightly underperforming. According to him, his teams have done well, but they seem to fail to just get that final peak. And winning the Premiership is that final peak for many teams. So I don't see it as a Leicester, but it's never good to go to bet against Mourinho. I know people hate on him, but he took a very average Manchester United team to second in the table. He took Spurs, who were struggling out the wazoo last year, and still managed to get them to sixth place. I have a lot of questions about where the creativity in that midfield is going to come from, because it doesn't look like they have a single creative midfielder who can actually play. But it's hard to bet against Mourinho. Ancelotti's got a good-looking team. If that team, if Calvert-Lewin can continue to score the goals of the clip that they are, and their defense can hold up, maybe they can do it. I don't know. I know that's bold predictions with Everton and Tottenham, two teams who have underperformed for sure in recent years. But with title favorites not being as strong as they were in years past, maybe that's due to fatigue, maybe that's due to the players and other teams understanding their schemes. I think this year is going to be a little bit more open than previous years. Well, let's hope for that. I know the last couple of years, it's pretty much been Manchester City, Liverpool, and then each one kind of ran away with it one year after the other. And then we had a close bout last year. Uh, before before Liverpool ran away with it this year. So here's to hoping for a great Premier League season up ahead. I don't think we could leave a soccer deep dive without discussing VAR, which is the video assistant referee. I just want to get your thoughts on the value behind VAR. And we'll try to wrap up here with some high profile mistakes that have happened with VAR 
just within the last couple of months, as a Man City fan, I have been on the receiving end of an inordinate amount of poor VAR decisions, mostly in the Champions League, but in the Premier League as well. So I'll turn it over to you, bro, to get your thoughts on VAR. I'm going to avoid all particular instances of VAR causing an issue. I want to just want to talk about VAR in general for a second and say that the idea of a video assistant referee is not a bad idea. In fact, it's actually a great idea because sometimes referees can't see something that's going on the pitch and they miss it. That's where VAR comes in and VAR is able to correct that because sometimes they just miss a call they just because they don't see it and that's fine. VAR is there, corrects the decision and you go forward. The problem with VAR though is that it seems to overrule referees at times and then proceed to give new rulings or files that didn't even occur, seem to occur later. And it's a real tragedy for the game because soccer is a free-flowing game. It's not like basketball or American football or baseball where there's a lot of just start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. Soccer is a pretty free-flowing game. You have your two halves. You have your halftime team talk. But the game is supposed to flow. And when VAR goes back after like five minutes of gameplay to be like, oh, there was a foul five minutes ago and we need to go stop and do that. That kills the game for fans of every team. Yeah, I'm sure... The losing team, if you're, you're supporting them and they get a penalty off that, you're like, yay, we should have got that penalty. But in all honesty, for the neutral, it doesn't really help. I think VAR's job needs to be correcting mistakes which were blatantly wrong, encouraging referees to relook at a situation, especially for red cards. It's really helpful. It might seem horrible the first time it happens, but in closer review, it might be like, oh, actually, you know what? He did actually get mostly ball, so it's fine. You know, it shouldn't be a red, it should be a yellow. Or it goes the other way. Wow, I didn't see that guy stomp on the other guy. Yes, that should be a red. That's malicious intent and aggressive behavior. So I think VAR has a role. I don't think it's currently fulfilling it. It's something that has a lot of potential, but is being misused. A lot like Gabriel Jesus. So I want to get your thought on one aspect of VAR, which is the offside call. They have increased exponentially, and I know that they've given guidance to the refs this year to let the play go and then let VAR decide the offside. But when you are watching a game and you see someone with a computer sliding a cross hex over to the arm or the elbow, which can't touch the ball, and calling that offside, as a football purist, what are your thoughts? I just feel it takes away from the game and the human error that is natural in any other game. I don't think it's beneficial when it comes down to a matter of like centimeters, right? If it's like one centimeter off or like this blade of grass, he was you know that far off. That's why he's offside. That takes away from the spirit of what offside is. Offside is you're behind the defender. Yeah, if half your body is behind the defender, yes, you are offside. If your pinky is just straggling offsides, that doesn't mean much. It's the spirit of the law of the game, which needs to be enforced rather than measuring. And let's be real. VR doesn't really measure like that. It's not like they can get actually get projections and see where players are at every position. They're taking some angle and looking down the line and trying to see if that's offside or onside. So it's way too involved in those decisions. The linesmen need to do their job. And if it's a blatant error where he's clearly offside, yes, VAR needs to correct it. If it's a blatant error where, oh yeah, he was onside, should be should have been let to go through, that should be a decision. But if it's you're going down to inches, centimeters that he's offside, actually really centimeters, millimeters that he's offside, I think that's where VAR is going way too far. 
So essentially, they leave a lot to be desired when it comes to VAR. There is. Why don't we end on a quick discussion of the European leagues? Who are your favorites and who are most likely to get dethroned this year in La Liga, Ligue 1, Serie A, the Bundesliga? Well, Bundesliga, I think Bayern had this thing wrapped up. If Hansi Fleck can keep Muller playing at the level that he is, and Lewandowski continues his run of form, maybe he's half as good as he was last year this year. I see Bayern, easy win on the title. You know, Dortmund are playing well, but they're not Bayern, unfortunately. I think Bayern easily wins the Bundesliga this year. I think in League One, they're actually going to be a real title challenge this year. I don't think PSG have the chemistry this year as they've had in previous years. I think they're actually really going to feel the loss of Edinson Cavani, how, how hard he worked for that team. He's almost like a Firmino to Liverpool. You don't often see his results, though he had plenty of goals for PSG. But the impact he had for the team, I think, will be a lot larger than what people are assuming. So I think PSG are really going to face a tough title challenge this year. I think Marseille are playing well. And there are a lot of other te- there are a couple other teams in the French League who stand a chance this year. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. In Serie A, both the Milan teams have tried to really stack their squads. So it's going to be interesting to see how they do. But there's Ronaldo. And he comes up in clutch moments time and time again. Club and club and again. League and league again, Ronaldo has shown that he is just clutch. But I don't want to bet against Ronaldo winning another Serie A title. So I'm going to go with Juventus, maybe closer than it's been in years past again. Moving to La Liga, though, it's a real toss-up. Because Ronald Koeman coming into Barca, there's a new feel about it. He's hopefully going to be playing players in their desired positions. I know that was one of the first things he said in his press conference was, we bought Griezmann as a striker. We need to play him as one. We need to play Frankie de Jong in his position as well. I think he's going to impose a lot more structure on the team. So we'll see how the results come from that. Because they haven't been used to that in recent years. It's kind of just been the messy show. Let's see how much structure and positional restrictions he puts on Messi and the rest of the team. La Liga, a real question this year. I don't think Atletico's got it. So we're going to see. I think Real are going to struggle as well. Um, Zidane has committed to playing a lot more youngsters this year. So let's see if those youngsters can step up and be the difference. Let's see them be the Galacticos. If Rodrigo can step up, they can get their midfield churning again. Real can be a challenge and a real title threat, but we'll see. It's wide open in La Liga right now. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, bro, for that awesome, awesome deep dive into soccer. We actually have a really fun segment coming up called our Jargon Corner. This is our first time doing it this week. We will try to do this throughout the season and throughout this year of episodes. Our goal with the Jargon Corner is to break down some of the terms and terminology that people use within the sports that we discuss in our deep dive. So this week it's soccer. So without further ado, I'll get started here at Gotham. The first one is you always tell me that there is a soccer player who has two feet. And I always stare at you wondering what the heck you're talking about. So can you shed some light on what that means? Yeah, it's a phrase that's gotten very popular in recent years because a lot of players tend to favor one foot a lot over the other. And it's not just a slight favoring. Okay. It's my dominant foot. I want to use it, but 
there are some players who are becoming almost exclusive users of one foot or the other. So when we say a soccer player has two feet, it just means that they can use both feet effectively. And that's actually a real game changer in the game. So all you kids who are listening out there who want to really develop their soccer game is learn how to use both your feet effectively. Don't always rely on your right foot or your right ear, your left foot if you're a lefty to get the job done. You use both feet, you can really put defenses on their heels and really be successful. So that's what it means when say soccer players have two feet. All right. So the next one we have on our list is one that I've heard way, way too often as a Man City <laughs> fan. He took a knock and somehow he ends up being out for three months. So why don't you break down? He took a knock for us. It's exactly how it sounds. He took a knock means he got injured. It's as simple as that. He, he took a knock to a part of the body and that caused him to have an injury. So it's a very simple phrase. It's definitely more of a British phase, I think, but he took a knock means he got injured. I know as a Man City fan, you see that a lot, but I think a lot of teams are going to see that this year if they took knocks. So I know for us, Derby days are huge, but in the U.S. Of course, you support the wrong side of Manchester. Oh, <laughs> shots fired again. As you guys can see, it'll keep coming every single week. In the U.S., the word spelled D-E-R-B-Y, Derby, is typically associated with horse races, like the Kentucky Derby. But in soccer around the world, it's pronounced Derby, and it has a completely different meaning. So can you let us know what Derby means and why it's important and why soccer fans freak out when there's Derby Day? Derby days are great days, and that's because they're rivalry days. Derby's literally mean it's a rivalry game. It happens when there are two teams who are in close geographical proximity to each other. Take, for example, Liverpool and Everton. They're literally on opposite sides of one park in England. That's how close they are. That's what makes it a Derby match, that rivalry of, hey, this is our town. No, this is our town. You see it in Manchester with Manchester City, Manchester United. Those are Derby days because which color is the city going to bleed? Does it bleed red? Does it bleed blue? Well, we all know blood is red inside the body with the oxygen, so Manchester bleeds red. Just saying. So taking this to the U.S. example, you think in Major League Baseball, it's like the Yankees versus the Mets, the Subway Series. That's the New York Derby, that you can see in other sports. So anytime you see two teams which are in close proximity to each other and they're playing games, those are Derby games. You'll see it in the MLS with El Trafico. And you can see it across different sports leagues. So... The one thing that is common at Darby's is my friends keep telling me to wear a kit. And I always feel like a kit is something I would find at the pharmacy. So I'm not sure exactly what to do about that. So can you let us know what a kit is? Yeah, a kit is the full jersey pant combination. A lot of times it's just simplified to a jersey, but that's what a kit is. So if you want to go out and buy a kit, oh, you want to buy the jersey of your team. So in your case, if you're going to a Derby day, I would definitely get the top jersey. If you really want to go all in, buy the shorts. Fair enough. So one of my favorite teams is Manchester City. And with Pep Guardiola's style of playing, they always refer to Ederson, our goalie, as a sweeper keeper. And I'm like, is the dude great with his broomsticks after the match? I mean, is he dusting up the... The locker room? What What is he doing? Well, a sweeper keeper is a term 
affectionately given the goalkeepers. That's where the keeper part of that term comes from. Who are willing to do more than just stand in front of the goalposts and defend. They don't just protect the goal in terms of blocking shots. They actually step out and they serve as an outlet pass for their defenders. But also when the ball is coming in over the top where you have a lot of long balls, they step out as a sweeper would do. In American soccer, that's typically the last defender and act as that position, as a sweeper, to basically sweep the ball out of play or forward into the field. As opposed to just staying in their box, they're actually stepping out and playing defense. So that's where you get the term sweeper-keeper. They're basically playing the sweeper position, but they're the goalkeeper for the team. So we'll, we'll transition here from my favorite team, Manchester City, and their amazing, fluid attacking football to a term that has gained notoriety with Pep's best friend and arch nemesis, Jose Mourinho. Uh, Anytime someone talks about their team, they talk about something called parking the bus. Do most other team players just get off a moving bus because they didn't put it into park? What are we talking about here? Well, you know, it's often hard to find parking spaces. So parking the bus is actually a very difficult thing probably in the UK. So that might be what they're talking about. But realistically, what they're talking about, they say park the bus, is a style of football or really more so a mentality of football where instead of attacking the goal with everything you have, pushing six or eight players up into the attacking portion of the field, you defend ahead of everything else. You drop deep. Your entire team is in their final third and you defend. You park your metaphorical bus in front of the goal. That way they can't score. Because if it's blocked, the ball can't go in the net. So instead of just relying on your goalkeeper to be that safeguard, you have your entire team acting as that safeguard. So everyone is back defending and making sure that the other team won't score. This is typically employed in later stages of games when you have a 1-0 lead or something where you're like, we just want to keep this lead. We want to take the three points in this game. Let's defend. Let's park the bus. Got it. So I should make sure I send out a memo to all the other Premier League teams that against Man City, don't park the bus because we'll slice through you anyway. Good luck with that. Fantastic. So thank you, Gotham, for giving us a breakdown of some of the the unique terms that we hear in soccer and football around the world. Really excited to get your definitions rather than having to look this stuff up in a Merriam-Webster dictionary. A unique segment that we're going to try and do every week is something called the legacy moment. What we're trying to do is to highlight something that's happened in the sports world that really deserves some recognition and almost like a throwback Thursday. Bring it back to today. What are we bringing back this week, Anna? Well, this week in 2010, Troy Polamalu, the safety for the Pittsburgh Steelers, jumped over the Tennessee Titans offensive line and sacked the Titans quarterback immediately after the snap. It was so fast that there have been scientific experiments done to determine how fast he must have had to jump in order to sack the quarterback at the same instant he collected the snap. And so huge shout out to Troy Polamalu, a true, true Hall of Fame safety. And we are so excited that we get to highlight him in this week's Legacy Mode. Now on to our last segment for this week's episode, Trivia for the Week. 
I know a lot of you have been sitting on the edge of your chair waiting to hear what the response to last week's trivia question was. Or you probably just Googled it. Or you Googled it. But let's see <laughs> if Gautam ended up doing his research and figuring out who caught Brett Favre's first NFL career pass. Gautam, you want to give us the answer this week? Yes. And disclaimer, my guess of Antonio Freeman last week was incorrect. However, I think I need brownie points because I said the answer was going to be a very Brett Favre answer. And lo and behold, I could not have been closer to the truth because, in fact, it was Brett Favre himself who caught his first career pass. He threw the ball up, it was batted down, and he actually ended up catching it. So shout out to Brett Favre for catching his own pass. But that is truly a Brett Favre answer. So I think I need at least half credit for that question. All right, I'll, I'll put you in the half point tally as we keep score over the course of this year. Thank you to those who participated in last week's trivia question. Be sure to comment on our Facebook page if you're interested in participating in our trivia question this week. So as the soccer fanatic out of the two of us, I have a great question for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Remember, kids, stretching is important. Oh, okay. And there he is. Gautam is all stretched and ready to go. So, Gautam, the fastest goal ever scored in the Premier League occurred in 7.7 seconds. Who scored that goal? Oh, there have been a lot of quick goals in the Premier League. I I remember Jesus Navas against Tottenham because I think that was his only goal that he scored (laughs) for Manchester City. But... I'm not sure that that's the right answer. No, no, no. I think Sadio Mane had some really quick ones, but I'm going to go on a limb here and go with a guy who I think has only probably scored like two goals for his club, and that's Shane Long for Southampton. So I know I have a friend who's a huge Southampton fan, so I'll definitely check with him afterwards, but I have a feeling it was him because I remember that was also some ridiculous thing. They just kicked the ball long. And then somehow he scored. He just beat the keeper. I can't remember if it was a pass back or like they just like over the top, but he had a really early goal. And I think that's it. And with that, we're going to wrap up here for this week's episode of the Sports Masala podcast. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Gotham, if you want to give people a tease for what they can expect. It's going to be a great look at a sport that doesn't get much media attention in the United States, but is absolutely fascinating and enjoyed by large parts of the rest of the world. So I hope you tune in if you're interested in learning about a new sport or if you're just interested in learning about the sport, which I find way more entertaining than I find baseball. Great. Well, super excited to have that chat. Thank you all again for listening and we will see you all right here on Sports Masala. Have a great night, folks. 